Hey everybody, we're back with a bonus dead idea for you, because even though this show is officially concluded, we promised we'd bring you occasional new releases of dead ideas, and we're already making good on that promise. What's more, we're doing something new today. We have a guest host, Neil Eckhart of the show War and Conquest, which you should totally check out, is going to take the lead on this bonus episode. Neil, what are we talking about today? We're talking about the philosophy of millenarianism. It was a dead idea that came around the turn of the first millennium. It was the idea that the world was going to end in the fire of God's wrath. There was going to be volcanoes and earthquakes and destructions and explosions and massive paper cuts everywhere and just all kinds of really terrible <laughs> things. Well, it should be pretty obvious to anyone with a functional calendar that's worked in the past millennium or so, but we're 1,019 years past that date, and we're all still here. So today, we're going to get in deep and figure out why the Middle Ages had no idea how time worked and when it would end. That's perfect. Listeners, that's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who is partying like it's 9.99. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. Probably a lot of lutes and hurdy-gurdies, I imagine. <laughs> Folks, I'm BT Newberg, and I am the co-host today for your lead host. We have the man behind War and Conquest, a hilarious new show that started in July of 2018. Thanks for being on the show, Neil Eckhart. No problem. I'm happy to be here. Um ready to help expand your interview repertoire. Hopefully after me, you won't decide maybe this whole interview thing doesn't work out and I should just do all these shows by myself. <laughs> or maybe you'll be the biggest one ever. Yeah. Now, Neil, this is your baby. This episode is yours. So we're talking about millenarianism as you uh, introduced already for us. Take us into this dead idea. Tell us, give us, give us first the taste and then give us the depth. I think the first thing to really understanding medieval Europe is understanding religion. Because after the 4th century, Rome had become a Christian empire. Part of the problem in Europe, aside from the fact that the Roman Empire collapsed like a century later and everything was spread into chaos. That was no problem. Yeah. It was the lack of understanding. Because the story of the rise of Christendom, as it's known in later histories, is a story of sudden change because between the fall of the Roman Empire and the 8th and 9th century is an area we've collectively known as the Dark Ages. It's, oh, everyone was illiterate. Nobody knew what was going on. and um, which, is, which is not entirely true, right? Oh, no, the Dark Ages were... Yeah, they weren't really dark. It, they were the Dim Ages. It, yeah. <laughs> if we're looking... <laughs> if you look at it from... A modern perspective of scientific discovery and philosophy, yeah, it was the Dark Ages. But Europe found different ways to advance. They had made huge developments in farming and transportation and architecture. Things like the the beadboard plow, which is basically what you imagine a plow now, like the big arrow-shaped metal thing that digs up the ground, that was invented in the Dark Ages before people would just drive a ox with some sticks behind it and sort of scratch the dirt and anyone who's ever gardened before knows you can't just take a rake and go through your garden once and expect all the weeds to be gone. 
And yeah, so they they had some advances, yeah. right? So it wasn't really dark. But how does this then play into this coming idea that we're we're building up to, right? Millenarianism. Well, the biggest thing is humans, despite how much we like to say we love change, we really resent it unless it's forced upon us or it's something that we desperately need. Like there's no people are naturally afraid of change because we don't like the unknown. We're Despite us biologically being engineered to get bored of things, we still love the comfort of our day-in and day-out reality. So once you get periods of upheaval, whether they be religious, social, economic, it's going to scare people. And at the turn of the 10th century, upheaval was everywhere. This was the explosion of Christianity. All these Christian peoples that had been boxed in by these barbarians finally began to strike back and... They basically spread Christianity with the sword. They came in and beat the crap out of a barbarian people. And then they'd say, well, you guys are all Christians now. You better cut down all your idols of Odin and your sacred groves or we're going to kill you all. And so from the period of 950 to 1100, where it went from pockets in France and Germany to being the religion that was practiced throughout all of Europe. And that was change that no one had seen before. I mean, technological and social progress through the ages moves at a snail's pace. I mean, now we're in the modern day. We're not used to that. I mean, we're used to new changes happening every other week or year or so. But back then... I I get a new update on my iPhone like every two weeks, it seems. Yeah. And yet you'd have (laughs) entire centuries where things more or less stayed the same. But No updates. Yeah. And combined with the spread of Christianity through Europe was the oppression of it by its noble classes. So those two things together, severe oppression and severe change, were a recipe for disaster, and it made people want to believe in apocalyptic-leaning ideas like millenarianism. They thought, this can't go on forever, the world is going to have to end eventually, because it's all happening too fast and we have no idea what to do about it, and people panicked. And when people panic, they look to certain ideas for refuge, and millenarianism would become one of these ideas. Yeah, but we also have it today, too, though, don't we? I, I mean, we had a lot of panic around even when the turn 2000. The Y2K thing is kind of cloaked under the guise of technology, but it is really kind of like this sort of mass hysteria almost around the, just the number, right? So what's the real difference then between now and then uh well i think today are we're so used to being outraged and horrified by so many things because of the internet and the the media cycles that we're not as susceptible as we think we are i mean we still mm-hmm. get pulled into like the ebola craze or people were afraid zombies were going to go but i mean throughout all of history you have people who are afraid that the world's going to end I mean, we have it to a lesser degree today because world politics is more or less stable. But there's still that show Doomsday Preppers on National Geographic. There's still people who build bunkers with ventilation systems and 15 AR-15s and 20 years worth of MREs and canned goods. Well, the zombie apocalypse is coming, Neil. I mean, it can. I mean, they're not going to get in my house. I've got about 3,500 rounds of ammunition locked and ready to go. So, I mean. Oh, it comes out. Okay. We're, I live out in the woods. We got plenty of guns at the Eckert household. But um, part of the problem was Europe 
Now, this is a stereotype that's more or less true about the Middle Ages, is it was a time of chaos. There was, there was wars constantly. It almost seemed like a game. Like, it, like be, there would be your seasonal war where you'd have, if you lived up in the north, you had to worry about Viking invasions. All through the Viking Age, you have the Vikings invading England, Scotland, Ireland, France, parts of Germany. They raided all over. You had in the 900s, you had the Hungarians riding through the German territories all the way to France, looting and burning everything they have. And, of course, in order to explain this, the local priest gets up there after they're picking up the pieces of your burnt-out hut, and he says, yep, these guys are the agents of Antichrist, and the world's going to end, because these raids were almost a yearly occurrence. The Danes or the Hungarians would come in and sacked settlements, burn, take, loot, rape, whatever they wanted. And I think the big turning point for millenarianism is when Christendom began to turn these raiders back. The Danes were being defeated in England. Well, they weren't necessarily defeated. They took over the whole country. So the Dane raids did stop because now Danes were sitting on the throne of England, at least until Norman the Conqueror came, the Normans came in uh, 1066. Most of England, anyway. The Dane law. Yeah. Not so much Wessex, but well, they, but most of it had been completely taken over, yeah. Yeah. But eventually, I mean, Canute was sitting on the throne of England around the turn of the century, and he was Danish. Like, he mm. had, they, they had totally defeated. And have you been watching The Last Kingdom, haven't you? You think that, Yes, I you, love it. <laughs> you, spoiler alert, the Danes win. <laughs> Ethelred the Unworthy um, takes over, and he gets his ass handed to him by Canute and Sven Forkbeard. But, um, and the Hungarians had also been turned back by the Holy Roman Empire, and that was beginning to strengthen up. It was unifying Germany. The Vens, which were a constant barbarian people, had been conquered and converted. The Poles would convert during the turn of the century. Uh, certain places in Latvia would convert. Norway, Sweden, Denmark, they would all convert to Christianity around this time. So it would seem like the world was stabilizing. And in the semi-backward views of Middle Ages Christians, this meant the end of the world. Usually it's the other way around. Usually the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Why wouldn't it end? Now it's the world's finally getting better, and now it's all going to end. Because huh. in the eyes of Europeans, Europe had to be united for the end of the world. Because it all... Uh, it all what? Yeah. It all focuses around... Um, can you imagine what the Middle Ages Europeans would think about the European Union? They'd be like, yep, that's the end. Here we go. Uh, the Euro <laughs> is going to be the end of everything. One world order. I knew it. Antichrist is coming. It. Yeah, I, I. we were talking about it before the so, show. So Brexit saves the world is yeah, our basically, sequel here? Yep. <laughs> those, those Brits who were taking the past decade to leave the EU are going to keep everything together from falling to pieces. All right. But it, it all focuses around the the myth of the last world emperor, which is something <laughs> that we it basically biblical fan fiction. Like this is found nowhere in the Bible, which is particularly ridiculous to me because if you've ever read the book of Revelation before, there are plenty of outlandish things you could say, yeah, I doubt that's gonna happen. That you don't need to make <laughs> up anything. Like there's a horseman who comes from heaven that kills like a third of the population. There's a dragon. There's two multi-headed monsters. There's two major, like, near-world-ending apocalyptic battles. There's volcanoes, tidal waves, tsunamis. And you have to make up 
a legend about some guy who's going to unite Europe and conquer Jerusalem. Like, I feel like they had enough from the source material that they didn't <laughs> need to write, like, fan. It's basically, like I said, it's basically fan yeah. fiction. It's like, oh, Harry Potter and Ron Weasley make out after they defeat Voldemort. Like, wasn't, right. you weren't happy with the ending <laughs> of the last Harry Potter book. You had to make up some weird thing to post on Reddit or 4chan. So in this analogy, the Bible is to these millenarianism myths as Harry Potter is to Harry Potter fanfic. Yeah, basically. I mean, wow. you can you can look either way you want the Bible. I'm not going to try to convert anybody to Christianity here. But if we're <laughs> going to use the Bible as the source for what's going to happen at the end of the world, millenarianism is completely ridiculous. Because they basically cherry pick two passages from either end of Revelation and they just skip all the shit in the middle. Like, they just totally <laughs> gloss over it. So I'll, I'll break down the, the last world emperor or the last Roman emperor. I'm going to use them interchangeably because my brain's going to screw them up. Either one of them is technically right. So if you hear it, yeah, I didn't make a mistake. It's I just mixed them up a little bit. So basically, <laughs> Europe was going to be united, and the old Roman emperor... Like the old Roman Empire was going to be jointly ruled by somebody. Somebody was going to unite east and west again. And then they were going to march into the Holy Land and capture Jerusalem. And then the Holy Roman Emperor would walk up to Golgotha where Christ was crucified. There was going to be a cross already set up there. He was going to take off his crown. Jesus was going to come back and accept his crown. This guy was going to die. And then Jesus was going to use this army to defeat the devil in the last battle. And that was going to be the end of the world. And that completely skips like 19 chapters in the book of Revelation. Does sound like a really good historical period drama, though. It does. I mean, it would make a fantastic like Left Behind movie. I know they've made like 20 of them, <laughs> and I had to watch like 19 of them in Sunday school growing up, and most of them were terrible <laughs> B-list actors that were ugly, were too ugly for porn. <laughs> decided to, to take uh, take up their acting chops and left behind. So basically, I'm going to tear apart how that differs from what actually happens. Basically, the book of Revelation says Jesus comes back, takes all the Christians out of the world, and then as payback for witnessing thousands of years of humans doing things that piss off God, he spends seven years throwing plagues and terrible things at the earth. After that, there's this big battle, and the devil and Jesus fight, and Jesus beats the devil and all of his armies. Devil is chained for a thousand years. That devil. Yeah. The devil, you, you finally said in one time in history, you can't use the excuse the devil made me do it because he's chained in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. <laughs> and there's peace on earth, goodwill to men. Jesus rules, all the saints are here. It's happiness for a thousand years. No suffering, war, hunger, all that stuff. And then the devil is released. This confuses a lot of theologians. They don't know why. My personal thing is that it's one last object lesson about how terrible humans are. We'll have a thousand years of no suffering. As soon as something bad and fun comes along, we're going to go to it. Devil converts a bunch of these people, and they have one final battle, and after that, the world blows up. All the Christians are taken away to heaven. New Jerusalem is made on a new earth, and that's the end of history as we know it. So, <laughs> millenarians took the thousand years part and an army defeating the devil and just invented the rest of it they're like yeah we need to find a better way to interject our power politics system into the bible and they make up all the rest like they totally skipped 
every other part of the book of Revelation. It just focused on, oh, look, it says a thousand years here. I guess that means the world's going to end after the year 1000. Like they just cherry picked a couple verses. And you thought the people who march out there that say, oh, the gays are going to hell are bad for cherry picking verses. They got nothing on these middle aged Catholics. Well, that's the way you did it if you were working with the Bible. That, that's a, there was a long tradition of that. Well, this is, uh, this is one of the greatest parts of our modern society, the fact that we have freely printed books, especially religious books, yeah. and we can call bullshit whenever someone comes up and claims there's something in there. You can fact check people. Back then, most people couldn't read and there was even less books written. So That's true. That was what people wanted to interject themselves into. They all, everyone wanted to be the last world emperor. Charlemagne had come close. He had united France, Germany, and parts of Italy, but he had died and his heirs had broken apart the empire. You know, for all his visionariness, is that a word, visionary? It is now. Yep, I just right-clicked add to dictionary on Microsoft Word. It's a, it's a <laughs> word now. Call me Daniel Webster. Uh, <laughs> for all his visionariness, um, Charlemagne's biggest flaw was following Frankish law. Basically, in Frankish law, I know you discussed this a little bit in one of your last interviews on um, contraception about having to divide your land in between all your different uh, heirs. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Charlemagne didn't pick one heir to rule at all. He had three kids, and so he divided Europe into three parts, Italy, Germany, and France. And this would continue a tradition that would further split Europe. All of these people would have sons, and they would have to split and further split and split and split. So... France, as we know it, didn't exist back in the Middle Ages. There was like 10 or 15 separate lords and dukes who ruled these different regions, and they were almost always at war with each other. And this was part of the chaos of those days that made people think, There's, this can't last. There's no way we can keep this going. The, the levee is going to break eventually. You can only put so much pressure behind something before it explodes. And people would turn to the church for their answers, and the church is like, well, the year 1000 is coming up, and we cherry-picked these couple of verses, so get ready for the end of the world in year 1000. Well, like I said, we're here 1,019 years later, and apparently it didn't happen. <laughs> but it made sense to people at the time. So from the perspective of somebody at the time, right, in Northern Europe or Western Europe in the medieval period that you're describing with all this chaos and everything, do you think maybe it kind of made sense to them at the time? You said like, they're not literate, right? Uh, and, yeah. you know, they've, they, they've got a whole different kind of way of thinking about their world, right? You know, the, it's much more mythic really than a kind of like systematic kind of almost uh, scientific way of thinking about history that we'll tend to default to now. So, a number comes up. It seems to be a very definitive number, the year 1000. The calendar is coming from, like, you know, the year of our Lord, Anno Domini, right? Yes. So from the perspective of people at the time, uh, can you kind of see it? Yeah, and it was, I mean, Charlemagne was the first person to really use Anno Domini because before then, um, there was plenty of different calendars moving around. And the, oh, the, interesting. The, okay, I didn't know when that exactly yeah, that, it, that started. Yeah, it was around Charlemagne's reign that he decided that this calendar was going to be it. And there was actually a bit of a scare. Someone, because right around his reign was the year 800. And 
people thought maybe something was going to happen there. People always just seem to get jumpy around the, these big dates whenever we have a couple zeros after something. Every okay. millennium or every centennial, people get a little bit sure. jittery because I guess round numbers frighten them. I don't know. <laughs> round numbers are very scary. Uh, so it was only actually about 200 years into using this counting system, this year counting system, that the year 1000 comes up. They hadn't. OK, that's very yeah. curious. Well, but yes. Before then, no one really worried about it because there was a guy named St. Augustine during the fifth century who had uh -huh. wrote a lot of things that actually a lot of modern people agree on. And the, the Bible is very explicit with this. Jesus says, don't worry about the end of the world. Nobody knows, not even I know. The only one who knows is God the Father. No one else knows when the end days are, so there's no point in speculating about this. And he had written these books, and it had been widespread for hundreds of years. People didn't care. Nobody really worried about it. They just went about their daily lives. Eh, maybe it'll happen sooner or later. But like I guess after Charlemagne uses this, and we're having these these years progress, and as the chaos gets worse and worse internally in Europe, despite all the successes of their outward expansion, internally Europe was crumbling. There was hmm. wide-scale oppression. Yeah, it was terrible to be a peasant. I mean, it's it's never been a good time in the world to be poor, but I mean, I mean now I guess is probably the best time to be poor because you can still afford to eat and you don't have to worry about most of your things being stolen and you can still buy things like technology. I mean, I'm living mm -hmm. proof of being pretty poor and still being able to afford to do most of the things I want to do. But internally, like Europe was crumbling. It was suffering under the oppression of what were called castellans. This is actually the reason why there's so many castles in medieval Europe. Because if you were a lord or just some upjump knight who wanted to claim he was a lord, you had a little bit of land, what were you to do to make sure no one was going to come and steal it? You build a castle. Mm -hmm. You put up, you throw up some a wooden barricade. You hire some people to help enforce your law, and you're the lord now. Anyone says you're not, they're going to have to fight you. What are the peasants going to rise up? The peasants don't know a thing about siege warfare. So castles not only protected the lord's legitimacy from his neighbors, it also helped oppress the peasants. Once the castle went up, you were screwed. I mean, if you have a mob of a hundred people, they would lose quite a few people. But you can swarm twenty knights and kill them. Once they're behind castle walls, they're safe. There's nothing you can do. Your popular uprising is doomed. And that's part of the feeling of oppression that really set into the common people, the fact that there's nothing we can do. These people are going to continue stealing half or a third of everything we make for the rest of our lives. <laughs> but in the words of Tom Holland in his book, The Forge of Christendom, they just sort of accepted that some order was better than total chaos because that was the last thing you wanted was something like the Hungarians plowing through your land. It's kind of hard for the Vikings to raid when you have a castle watching your land. So it was mm -hmm. a trade-off. You basically gave up your freedom and autonomy for protection. Basically mm -hmm. the oldest trade-off in human history. Are you a, Do you want to be free or do you want to be safe? You can't be yep. both. Yep, that makes sense. And so all of this sort of feeds into this maelstrom forming in Europe. Event everyone realized that the levy was going to break eventually. There was no way that this state of affairs could go on forever because as these Castellans got more powerful, they were in basically enslaving more people. 
They would wait for a particularly hard winter, and these free people who owned their own farms and paid taxes would go broke because there was a famine, and they would basically sell their lives to these lords to work as serfs, where they had to work year-round, they had no freedom, they got a little bit of food, and that was it. So as these castles and fiefs expanded, they're basically forcing everyone into agriculture. If you were hungry, you used to be able to go out in the woods and trap fish or squirrels or whatever, or hunt deer or something. Now you have poaching laws and you're forced to work on the farm all day long. So if the crops fail, you're done. If you get a hailstorm or it rains a lot, your your kingdom's in famine because all your food comes from agriculture. And Mm -hmm. in the period of 975 to 1000, there was famines everywhere. It was it had been extremely wet for years and you were getting blights on the crops and people were starving to death. So all of that just sort of piles on top. So now you have to worry about the Hungarians coming. You're being oppressed by Castellans. There's famine. You can barely eat and the food you can eat is moldy. So you're hallucinating a bunch of things or dying of plague. And yeah, all the of, dancing plague, right? Yeah. And I do. <laughs> there's a lot of weird sightings that go on and you, we can quickly dismiss some of it as bullshit, but some of that, I believe, may have had to do with that one fungus that grows on wheat. I forget what it's called, but it makes you hallucinate. Ergot. Er, that's what it is, yeah. Yeah, ergot. Because in, around the year 1000, there were sightings of dragons and things like that. And now this may have just been people making something up to tell around the campfire, or they could have been tripping balls off their wheat disease. Either way... As you can see, we're getting more and more just load, we're loading down the backs of these people in Europe. And eventually, like I said before, the levy had to break and people mm-hmm. assumed it would be around the year 1000. And when that didn't come, they realized something had to change or there weren't. everyone realized that they weren't going to be able to survive into the next century because they would either starve to death or violence would just totally consume the continent. They'd run out of people to fight, and so they started to fight themselves, basically. It seems to be a problem throughout history. Is as soon as there's no boogeyman outside the gates of the city, we go back to tearing each other's throats. Hmm. It's an interesting... So around 1,000, the world does not, in fact, end. So take us through, then, how does this dead idea die? And what does it have to do with the Crusades? Well, it would take another 100 years almost exactly to die. But the first thing that these prophets who preached millenarianism said was, or what most doomsday people who pick an exact date do, they just move the goalposts. Well, it wasn't a thousand years after his birth. Maybe it was a thousand years after his death. So they moved the goalposts back to 1130 or 1134, depending on how old you believe. Well, Jesus was in his 30s when he died, so... Sometime in the 1030s is when the world's going to end. That doesn't happen, so it gets moved back again, and once again, it doesn't happen. So during that time period, the people said, well, the world isn't going to end. More and more people were falling away, and it actually became a dead idea in the intervening time, in between around the 1030s to 40s to 1095, the time of the Crusades. People had actually given up on it until then, until it was resurrected to be used to help recruit for the Crusades. 
hardest part about talking about the Crusades is there's no Pearl Harbor moment. There's no 9-11. There's no one event that pissed everybody off and starts the Crusades off. Hmm. It's a myriad of different things. If you think about it, the thing that should have started them happened in 1009 with the destruction of the Holy Sepulchre, which is basically like the holiest shrine to Christianity on earth. There was this guy uh, named Al-Hakim, the Sultan of Egypt, who, interestingly enough, Islam had its own millenarianism as well. I guess you'd have to call it centenarianism too, because this was around the year 400 for them, because the Muslims go off of... um, it's either the birth or death of Muhammad. It has something to do with Muhammad. So their their calendar is a lot shorter than ours. But in the year 1009, they were at the year 400. And like Christians, they were a little bit skittish of centuries. And this guy, this guy Al-Hakim, had decided he was the last, he was their Muslim world's version of the last world emperor. He was the rightly guided caliph, the guy who was going to unite Islam and convert the world. And he would do a bunch of really weird things like killing all the dogs of Cairo. So oh, I probably should have given a SPCA spoiler warning for that, for all the dog lovers <laughs> to cover their ears. Dog- no dogs were harmed in the filming of this episode. Dog lovers cover your ears. He killed them all. <laughs> <laughs> he would force women to stay inside and cover themselves. And any women who sexually tempted him would be mutilated in his harem. Like he used to go into his harem with a sword and an executioner's mat in case he was tempted. You'd think, like, maybe you just stay out of the harem, like the place you go for sex. Maybe you shouldn't get upset when you pop a boner. Like, I don't, it <laughs> seems a little odd to me. Well, Al Hakim, he was out there. A lot of people realized it, but he was the guy in power, so there's nothing he could do. And word had come to him that the Christians were faking the miracles happening in their temple. There was this miracle where the candles went out and they came back alight the next day and somehow they proved it was a forgery so he gets pissed off and he goes in and he raises the holy sepulcher to the ground knocks down the church and the holy sepulcher is the tomb of jesus it was a big church and temple built around it by constantine supposedly it had where christ was buried and where he died encapsulated in this same church al-hakim comes in there knocks it all down and you would think that would be the moment where Christianity would rise up and march to the east. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine that happening right. today. Like, can you imagine if Jews blew up the Dome of the Rock? There would be yeah, Muslim I mean, that's, armies that's the in Israel trade... the next day. Yeah, that's the World Trade Center of the Christian world at the time, right? Yeah, so. basically. E- even more so, it would be like the World Trade Center collapsing on the Pope's head. That That's how much <laughs> rage it would invoke. And it is hard to make right. religious analogies in today's society because all of our governments are run secularly. Yeah. Really, the only thing I can think of to describe like religious fervor is like radical Islamic terrorists. Like they're the only yeah, people we because... have in our modern world who fight for their religion. We don't yeah, really fight time, holy yeah. wars in the West. I don't even think you could call a crusade if you wanted to. Like if Francis got on Twitter, it's time Let's to crusade everybody. Let's try it. Let's call for a crusade right now and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, that would be taking that would be the total perfection of memes. Like people think the Donald Trump <laughs> presidency was the victory of memes. No, that would be the the victory of memes in the modern world. <laughs> so Al Hakim eventually is deposed from power because he's a nut job, and they rebuild the Holy Sepulchre. And visitors actually think it's the same one. But before that happens, interestingly enough, 
Now, this conspiracy theory is going to blow anything Alec Jones ever said out of the water. The Jews of Orléans in France were blamed for this. Like a city, like 2,200 miles of away from Jerusalem. they were. <laughs> Apparently, they had been sending letters to Al-Hakim saying, these Europeans are going to get ready to invade your land. You better destroy the reason they're going to come here. And he said, you know what? That's a good idea. And so the French and German people immediately began purging all the Jews in their region. They were going on pogroms, and they were just butchering all of them. And then a year after that happened... Did, so did were they suspecting that the Jews had weapons of mass destruction or something? I or mean, does this analogy play a little bit closer? <laughs> I mean, it's possible. Maybe they were poisoning the rye bread and giving it out to the kids. I don't know. But um, they... Which was it came out of That's nowhere ridiculous. too, because like Jewish people had lived in peace with Christians for hundreds of years in Europe. They'd right. live, they'd live next to these people. They'd learn the language. They'd name their kids. They'd look almost similarly, except for really big ears and noses. If you believe the Jewish stereotype, mm -hmm. um, but they more or less had lived in harmony. Tom Holland, one of the guys I use for my research here, he says just mutual disdain. They're both like, yep, you're wrong religiously, but more or less like we live in our modern world with tolerance. And all of a sudden, the Jews were responsible for the destruction of the Holy Sepulchre. All right, let's kill them all because the world's going to end in a couple of years. And then everyone was like, huh, maybe we overreacted. Come on, Jews, come on back to our towns. We need you to run the banks and the financial systems. <laughs> and eventually they would trickle back in and the Jews would be safe for another like 70 years until the start of the first crusade and then they would kill a bunch of Jews again. Like I have a whole episode on that on my show called Misdirected Aggression of just crusade, the first crusade just killing a bunch of Jews. Because as terrible as it sounds to us, that actually fit into their philosophy. Because if you call back last world emperor unites Europe all of Europe has to be Christian. There can't be any pagans mm, left in Europe. Right. And if you've defeated all the pagans on your borders, Odin has been cast down. All the ancient Celtic gods have been destroyed. The only people left in Europe that aren't Christian are the Jews. So from mm. a twisted, really like final solution sense, it actually makes sense to the people of the time. Yeah, we need to kill the Jews. And but they also had the Muslims on their borders. So why was the aggression not directed at the Muslims? I'm guessing it's because the Jews were closer. Uh, that's part of it. The Muslim world at the time had both a prosperous trading relationship with Christian Europe. And at the time of the Crusades, the Muslim world was in no way able to attack the Christian, mm. the world of the Christians. Because before the millennium, they had controlled most of Spain, their capital of... Uh, Cordoba and Al-Andalus mm -hmm. was ruled mm -hmm. by the, the Muslims, but that had fallen apart. They let the Berbers in as mercenaries, and the Berbers started trashing everything. And then the Visigoths had come back in and started taking things. You had the Reconquista happening. Mm -hmm. Southern Italy had been conquered by the Normans. They had come in and beat the shit out of the Saracens there. So that thorn in Christianity's side was out of it. And the Byzantine Empire was holding back the... Arabs, or the, at the time it was the Turks in Anatolia. So okay. the borders against Muslim, Islam was were basically stabilized. Okay. So, so they start looking around like, we need to find somebody else who's not Christian to beat up here. We're running out of people. Yeah. Well, part of it was also 
the fact that the people who did most of the Jew killing were poor, uneducated people who had been whipped up by demagogic preachers, too. Most mm-hmm. of the Jew uh, killing was done by the people of the People's Crusade, the wave mm-hmm. of 100,000 people before the first official crusade that had been utterly destroyed by the time it made it to Anatolia. The Prince's Crusade, as it's called, the actual First Crusade, actually didn't do that much Jew killing. There were reports that they had extorted some money in a couple places, but for the most part, these richer crusaders didn't feel the need to pillage Jewish lands. So, I mean, I guess that's a partial tolerance win. They didn't kill them. And, I mean, there's, I mean, it's some pretty heavy reading. Like, if you want to read up about the Jewish pogroms at, in 1095, it's some some pretty messed up stuff that the Christians did to the Jewish population that was a couple days before had been their neighbors. And they That's... weren't all bad, too. There were some of the clerics that realized that this wasn't right, and they would shelter Jews. So it wasn't all bad, we should say. There was, there's always good people in every bad crowd. And another thing that had led to the First Crusade was, and it became in between millenarianism and the crusading ideal, was the Reformed Papacy. It was a couple of the couple popes had come from a place called Cluny. It was this major monastery, the center of the Christian world. It was one of the most famous and well-respected monasteries. Decided that they couldn't keep going on like the the rest of Europe had been doing. Basically, you have these two parallel ideas: like the social order needs to be reformed and the religious order needs to be reformed. Both of them are on untenable grounds. Mm. You have like for years from the time of Rome up until this time period, you could buy your way into any religious office you wanted because they had just taken, this was all part of the signing a pen and turning all of Europe Christian. Rome was famous for its corruption. You could buy your way into just about any political office you wanted to. And so mm-hmm. that was carried over. You used to be able to buy your way into the pontificate. So now you can just buy your way into being a pope. Or not a pope. Mm-hmm. Well, you, well, there were a couple of people who bought the papal clothes, but you could make yourself a cardinal or a bishop or a priest or something. That was one of the demands that the reformers said. They were the first people to put forward uh, celibacy for anyone who had taken the cloth. So before then, monks and priests could have sex with women if they were married to them, and it wouldn't be blinked at twice. Mm. So if you... If you're one of those people who believe that the modern problems with the Catholic Church are because they can't marry, you can blame Gregory VII for that. Thank and, you. <laughs> and they also um, they also believe that the king shouldn't have power over the church. They wanted basically the separation of church and state. And mm. this whole thing started what was called the investiture conflict. It went over for about 25 years of the Holy Roman Empire and the Pope fighting back and forth and setting Europe ablaze once again. And this was actually Pope Urban II, the guy who succeeded Gregory VII's way of ending this. He figured to bring everybody together, they needed a common enemy to fight, and that common enemy was living in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And as a way to expand his power and bring everybody together, the First Crusade solved all or most of these ideas. So... The end goal of millenarianism was always Jerusalem. Jerusalem had to be captured. The Antichrist had to take Jerusalem from the Christians in order to start all of these, to start the ball rolling on the end of the world. Well, if the Saracens 
which was the name for the Muslims at the time. It was just their mm-hmm. general, it's an etymology thing. It wasn't actually what Arabs called themselves. But if they controlled Jerusalem and they're servants of Antichrist, how can Antichrist take something back that's not his? So in order to start the ball rolling on the end of the world, Christians need to own Jerusalem. And so this wait. was... Okay, wait. So if I'm getting this right, the idea is they have to take it from the Muslims so that the Muslims can take it back yes. so that that can start the the end times app that's going to run. And when that yes. app terminates, yes. then we're going to have like apocalypse and Jesus rules forever. Yes. Yeah, these were, oh the, my God. these were one of the few peoples in history that actually actively sought to speed up the apocalypse. So they're like, okay, our PC is glitching out here. We have to find some way to reboot so that we can start again. Yeah, this was basically like installing Windows 10 on your Windows 7 computer. We got to break <laughs> it to fix it. So, <laughs> so yeah, that, that was it was a little messed up. But, I mean, I can sort of see where they're coming from here. Right. So um, it, was an, it was one of the reasons why people were afraid of starting the state of Israel back after World War II. People believed that this was another time that the world was going to end because now the Jews now controlled Israel again. Antichrist was going to come and take it from them. So mm-hmm. even up in, I guess you could say, millenarianism survived till 1946 in some All way or right. another, okay. if you think about it. Well, I mean, it's one of those things that keeps coming back, right? But the part, the kind that we're talking about pretty pretty much dies around this time, right? For a long span, it, there's not much to be, to be said about it, right? Yeah, because after Jesus didn't come back after the anniversary of his death, and there was another time in 1064 where Easter and the Annunciation lineup didn't mm-hmm. come, it died out for those years. They, all the clerics had more important things to worry about. The investiture conflict started. The reform papacy was going. The church was a mess. So the last thing that they were worried about was the end of the world. They had to worry about assorting their own affairs and preaching whoever preaching against whoever the pope wanted preached against. So they were distracted for a while. And then Urban comes and says, you know what? If we can revive this ideal, this can be something to unite us again. Maybe the European world won't be united under a military leader. But if they're all Christian, maybe that's enough for it to count, and we need to take an army and move it to Jerusalem. And so in 1095, he preaches the first crusade. The People's Crusade gets 100,000 people. They go out and get annihilated. The Prince's Crusade gets around an equal amount. They make it to Constantinople and then move across and go through Anatolia and Syria. It takes them three years to get from where they started to Jerusalem. And in July 1099, they finally breach the defenses of the city of Jerusalem and massacre everyone inside, supposedly. That's a, that's a big contended thing. The numbers range from 3,000 dead to 70,000 dead, depending on who you believe. And they crowned a king there. And this would be the time where the last world emperor would have his crown. Jesus was going to come back and take the crown. Antichrist was going to come take the city of Jerusalem. The final world battle was going to happen. The world was going to end. And it didn't. The the crusader state would exist for another 88 years. Jerusalem would fall back to Muslim hands in 1187 after Saladin sacks the city. And the Crusader states would survive until 1291, and Jesus wouldn't come back. Or at least if he did, not a lot happened when he did, because we're all still here 
2019 years later. Still mm-hmm. waiting. Still waiting. All right. Well, awesome, Neil. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Thank you for coming on the show. Folks, be sure to check out Neil's show, War and Conquest. He has a series coming out right now about the Crusades. So this is kind of a nice little teaser for his whole series. So if you enjoyed this, go check that out. It's surprisingly hilarious (laughs) for the (laughs) subject matter that we're talking about. (laughs) Well, Um, thanks for having me. It was a a lot of fun to be on. Absolutely. If I dig up any more dead ideas in my future travels, I'll be sure to let them know about it, and I'll come back on and talk about them with you. Sounds good. Also, listeners, remember to subscribe to our feed, Dead Ideas, to get new releases like this one, as well as updates on the development of our new show called The History of Sex, covering gender, sex, and quirk across cultures and throughout world history. It's in development now, and we can't say exactly when it will release because we're taking the time to do it right. But suffice to say, it's going to be good. You can subscribe to keep up on that, and you can also support the development of that show on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Mm-hmm.